thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Medical Grand Rounds, uh, CME uh, Conference of the Department of Medicine. Um, our speaker today, Dr. Wang, will be introduced by Dr. Brian Lacey, our Section Chief in Gastroenterology and Hepatology, uh, himself uh, an estimable uh, physician and leader here. Um, and uh, just to say that uh, Dr. Wang does have a disclosure um, a slide to share with you, but uh, I think you'll find his uh, discussion quite unbiased. Right? Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real honor this morning to have Dr. Wang. I think it's always difficult to choose a great medical grand round speaker because we all have so many different interests and different areas of expertise, and it's fine, uh, sometimes hard to find a great topic that's of interest and relevant to everybody. And then kind of as a, an aside for our group, we obviously want to choose somebody where there's an area of expertise and international excellence for our fellows where we'll do some teaching and training later. So we certainly couldn't have a better person this morning than Dr. Kenneth Wang, especially given the fact that 40% of you have reflux symptoms every month and 20% have reflux symptoms every week. And if we were to screen 100 of you, several of you have Barrett's esophagus and don't even know it yet. So this should be quite relevant and pertinent to all of you. Uh, for those of you who are Wolverine fans, you'll be pleased to know that Dr. Wang was a Phi Beta Kappa at the University of Michigan in 1978. He then went on to medical school at Wayne State in Detroit. He then completed his internship and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, where he's been there uh, since that time in the 1980s. Uh, Dr. Wang is truly an international expert in advanced endoscopy and in the diagnosis of reflux disease and Barrett's esophagus. He's the past president of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. He's on multiple NIH committees. He's received multiple grants. He's published more than 275 peer-reviewed articles. And so if you open up any textbook or any article on reflux or Barrett's esophagus, this is who you will be thinking about and reading about that. So for the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to learn a little bit more about Barrett's esophagus and the treatment of Barrett's esophagus. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Thank you very much for the kind invitation, Brian. It's, it's, it's really an honor to be here. I have not been here before. It's a beautiful campus. You have wonderful facilities. And I hope to enlighten you a little bit about Barrett's esophagus and what we do in gastroenterology, as well as some life lessons uh, about uh, medicine in general for those of you who are in training. And I think uh, Barrett's esophagus is a great disease to study because of you know the, the history of the disease. It's very rich, actually. Uh, these are my disclosures. I take money from a lot of companies, mainly because these are technologies that we are trying to develop. How many of you are interested in going into gastroenterology? There's a few. Good. And it's a great field. I, I have to admit, when I when I started, it was not my first pick when I was an intern. Uh, you know, but yeah, I had a very good instructor my first year, and that kind of swayed my opinion. Uh, about what I should do. Later on, when you thought about it, you probably shouldn't have done it, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard to explain to family and friends what you do all day. They're all going like, God, couldn't you be a better doctor? Or, <laughs> is that what they do with the bottom of the class? 
anyhow, so I thought I'd talk about understanding indications for ablative therapy and uh, the possible etiologies of intestinal metaplasia and understanding ramifications of stromal activation on recurrence of Barrett's esophagus after ablation. Now, these are kind of dry topics, but I try to fit these together because it's a rationale for understanding what you're doing. I mean, we do a lot in medicine. I'm sure those of you who are starting to learn, you know, we are given rationales, but they're not often correct, and they evolve over time, and it really behooves you to really understand what you're doing, because then you can take that knowledge and actually hopefully change things. Norman Barrett is a great example of, of something to emulate. Norman Barrett was actually an Australian. We all talk of him as an Englishman, but he was born in North Adelaide, Australia. He moved to England when he was 10 years old after his family made a huge fortune in the beer distillery business. You can imagine beer in Australia, now there's something. Anyhow, uh, the controversy. This is actually a Mayo Clinic surgeon, O.T. Claggett, that, that met Barrett. A brilliant technical surgeon endoscopist, as good as I have ever seen. His surgical judgment, breadth of knowledge, and compassion for patients were even more remarkable. This is what happens when you give like grand rounds and stuff. People say really nice things about you. But those of you who know, I don't know, there's a number of gastroenterologists in the audience. Those of you who know uh, Peter Cotton, who is also a famous gastroenterologist, he actually met Norman Barrett, and his impressions were far different. <laughs> Norman Barrett uh, uh, had him come into a room once and said something like, do you know how tall Queen Victoria was? And you know, Cotton was like totally flabbergasted, didn't know. He, he said something like five foot one or four foot 10, something like that. And he goes, good, you've learned something today. Now get away from me. <laughs> that was uh, Peter Cotton's anecdote. You probably have professors like that. Anyhow, the interesting thing is, in 1950, Norman Barrett published on Barrett's esophagus, what later termed Barrett's esophagus. And what he said was, geez, you know, I found these ulcers in a few small series of patients in the esophagus. Now, he thought that these were a congenital disorder. They were very rare. They all presented with GI bleeding. And he thought they were chronic gastric ulcers and in a congenitally short esophagus. Now, the thing that's interesting is Norman Barrett got his name on this because he was English and everybody reads English publications. There were actually nine prior reports of this entity prior to his publication, but we don't name it after any of those guys, some of which were pretty bitter afterwards, but, you know, that's what happens in life. So, you know, it doesn't have to be first. You just have to be in a language and in a journal people will quote. And the important things about Barrett's esophagus, at least what we think now about intestinal metaplasia and cancer risk, he never knew about. So what I love about this is that he kind of got it all wrong about the significance of the disorder, but he still gets it named after him. So, you know, you can make a great contribution to medicine and still be totally wrong in your beliefs. It's one of the few fields that that can happen. <laughs> All right, but he did have some really interesting observations in that paper that actually persist to this day. 
One is that he believed the hernia precedes and causes esophagitis, not the reverse. That's in the paper. It's kind of interesting. So he even knew back then that hernia was very important in reflux disease, and it is. I mean, we had debates about this for generations. Pain, he said, in these patients when he talked to them was not proportional to the visible amount of inflammation. That's another valuable thing. You know, a lot of times we see patients or yourselves with reflux disease, it's not proportional to what the gastroenterologist sees down there. You can easily have reflux and not have erosive esophagitis. That's just a form of reflux disease. And he said the treatment should eliminate reflux from not only the stomach, but also the duodenum. So he recognized even back then it's not just an acid problem, but probably involved bile reflux as well. And a lot of these patients have a ton of bile reflux. And you'll find that you, you really need both to cause really erosive injury of the esophagus. So why is this even a problem? Why are we even discussing it today? Because you get curves like this. We love to show these because you can get funding for it. And you can say, look, to all these middle-aged white males, which make up most of Congress, look at what's happening to you. You guys are at risk for a very nasty cancer. It's going up faster than any other. Naturally, oh my god, it affects me. I'll give money to this. <laughs> So the definition of Barrett's, we debate this too, and it's debated on both sides of the pond, so to speak. It's a proximal displacement of the squamous columnar junction relative to the gastroesophageal junction. So the squamous junction moves up into the proximal esophagus. In the United States, we require the presence of intestinal metaplasia. Our latest guidelines kind of waffle a little, saying, well, you know, yeah, you, you can probably have a pre-Barrett state that has intestinalization without uh, goblet cells. But really, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, helpful to define it in a manner that to exclude those patients that just have an irregular uh, squamocolumnar junction or have something that isn't going to bother them. The problem with Barrett's is, despite the fact we show those curves, there's not that many people with Barrett's-related cancers. If you have Barrett's esophagus and you're a middle-aged male, you're still more likely to die of colon cancer than you are esophageal cancer. Colon cancer is 10 times more prevalent. So, you know, even if you have Barrett's, it's not really that scary. If you do epidemiological studies, it does not affect overall survival. This just shows you what it looks like endoscopically. You have this nice little ridge of, uh, of uh, salmon-colored mucosa. This is the stomach, proximally towards the mouth, orad. You see all the squamous mucosa. And in the, in the classic Barrett, you have these little blue staining cells that are goblet cells, although uh, there's whole papers written about other things that stain blue that are not goblet cells. As is popular now, make this case-based, and we'll have a 58-year-old white male with reflux symptoms for 20 years, self-medicated with over-the-counter anti-acids periodically. On examination, he has a BMI of 35 and a waist-hip ratio of 0 0.95. Do you guys do waist-hip ratios at all when you examine patients? Probably not. You probably just fudge it, you know, like 0.7. 0.9 if they look slightly plump, <laughs> something like that. Anyhow, um, it's kind of nice because it gives you abdominal obesity. You know, World Health Organization has it out there. Uh, so if you do it, you know, you find out they have increased central obesity. 
that does put them at risk. And then he says he has a family history of esophageal cancer in his father. The question is, would you screen this patient for Barrett's esophagus? He has chronic reflux symptoms. He has central obesity. His age greater than 50. He's male, and he has a first-degree relative with esophageal cancer. How many of you would screen him? How many read the ACP guidelines? <laughs> they actually don't believe in screening. The American College of Physicians says, ah, you know, the, the Barrett's risk is too low. The American Gastroenterology Association, which one could say is conflicted because we have a self-interest in this, does promote screening in patients with multiple risk factors. And this would be one of them. The British Society of Gastroenterology also says that. ACP says, ah, you know, the risk of cancer is so low, they're not really sure that this, you know, nobody's ever proven this prospectively that this actually reduces the risk of cancer. So, you know, what's the paradigm for screening? We want to intervene at a stage we can actually make a difference. And whether that's at reflux symptoms, whether that's at actual Barrett's esophagus, or when they develop dysplasia, and finally adenocarcinoma, no one is sure. At GERD, we usually are thinking about screening. That's the new paradigm most gastroenterologists kind of believe in. If you have chronic reflux symptoms, male, central obesity, all the factors we just listed, we might screen it. Oh, by the way, the one that isn't probably true is the one first-degree relative with uh, esophageal cancer. That probably isn't enough to separate out the groups. Uh, recent publication showed you probably needed two first-degree relatives, kind of like with colon cancer. All right, and then uh, you can do surveillance on these patients if they have non-dysplastic variants, because at the current time, we don't think it's worth ablating, although that's debated by some people. And then we can treat people with dysplasia generally. And of course, with adenocarcinoma, you do what you need to do. So the rationale for screening Barrett's, if you look at the incidence rates and the mortality rates, the disease-specific uh, uh, incidence rates versus mortality, they're virtually identical. People who get cancer, esophageal cancer, usually die from it. And if you, but the reason for that is because most of the people that develop the cancer are undetected. You know, we do all the surveillance and stuff, but it's for less than 10% of the population that probably get Barrett's esophagus. If you look at, this is a very old study done in 1990 by one of my mentors that looked at autopsies. If you look at the autopsy incidence, it's 376 per 100,000. If you look at the clinical endoscopic diagnosis, it's 22. Factor of 10, at least. If you look at the most recent national epidemiological registry of Dutch patients, they looked at the rate of cancer in 11,000 patients with diagnosed Barrett's esophagus in Denmark. That's a lot of patients, came up with a nice number. However, the important thing I thought from this was 93% of the esophageal adenocarcinomas in Denmark were not in that cohort. Most of the people that develop cancers, even in a healthcare system that is relatively free and socialized and homogeneous, did not get a diagnosis of Barrett's beforehand. So you gotta think about screening, because certainly doing what we're doing doesn't work well. So anyhow, these are the listed uh, uh, risk factors. You see somebody like that going down the road, you probably should screen them immediately. <laughs> Age 50, male sex, white race, 
chronic gastroesophageal reflux symptoms, hiatal hernia, elevated body mass index, and intra-abdominal distribution of body fat are the risk factors. So if you see that, you know, at least your average gastroenterologist would offer them screening, especially if we would make an intervention. Now let's say we scope this guy and we see a lesion. This is where it gets more specific to our specialty. You know, you guys don't do endoscopy, but these little lumpy, bumpy things are not good. Nowhere in the body are lumpy, bumpy things good, right? You know, you find one, you always get nervous. But if you found one, you know, in GI now, we have a lot of options. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you guys realize that, especially if you in internal medicine. We now operate like surgeons. It's really a fun time. I mean, before, when I started, you hardly could touch anybody's polyp or anything. You had to have a surgeon do it. Now we do most of the procedures ourselves, and Brian knows the evolution over time has been remarkable. So right now, what would you do? Well, you could biopsy and wait. You could do a mucosal resection, take the whole thing out. You could do an optical biopsy to reassure yourself that the thing is cancerous. And that's another thing we have capabilities of. We, we rank a lot of other specialties. This is medical grand rounds, so I hope there's not a whole lot of pathologists around. But you know, we would, you know, if you look at the future, you'll probably have to do this because it's cost effective. Right? You know, sending specimens off, having patients come back, it's a waste of time and money. You're going to have to do some of this stuff. And we have things like narrowband imaging that's built into every endoscope that lets you look at pit patterns and vascular patterns and mucosal patterns and enhance areas. We also have things like confocal laser endomicroscopy, which is exactly that, a confocal laser microscope built into an endoscope. This isn't actually available anymore. We use it mainly as a research tool. This is much more clinically available. This is a small probe that fits through an endoscope that gives you a single slice depth of a lesion. But it magnifies you know, upwards of 400 to 1,000 times. So you can really see very, very clearly at a cellular level what's going on. And you can, you know, pretty good agreement, and you can see very odd-looking patterns here. You give intravenous fluorescein that highlights vascular leakage and irregular patterns. The one thing is, is you know, they always compare this to pathology, and that's a, there's a problem there because pathology is not very good. And also, they're looking at something that's, you know, formal and fixed and stained. We're looking at this real-time living tissue, so you get a lot of other information. Like capillary leakage is very hard to see on an H&E slide. This happens to be an area of uh, high-grade dysplasia. Say that, and actually, this does come from a lesion in an individual, much like what we looked at. And you can see all this leakage, all these irregular things going on. Uh, you know, as you know in pathology, regular patterns are good, irregular, leaky patterns are bad. So this is probably high-grade dysplasia or cancer. There's just, you know, uh, leakage of fluorescein everywhere, and none of the, the, uh, the glands look uniform. So it gives you some information to do something about this. And we have a whole bunch of choices. I always tell patients, it's like you're going to play golf. You pick the right club. We can do a lot of things at this point. We can resect a little of it. We can try to resect the whole area. We can use heat to destroy it. Or we could just biopsy and send it to somebody who does all that stuff. So you got a lot of choices. Nowadays, what we have going on is we can mucosally resect almost anything that is in the mucosa. 
you'll see Japanese uh, endoscopists take out nine centimeter lesions. I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know, in the United States, you never see anything nine centimeters in diameter that hasn't invaded very deeply. But in Japan, they get these superficial spreading gastric cancers that, you know, they'll, they'll spend all day doing this, all day and half the night, too. Uh, and you can, you, when you do this, it gets rid of the one big problem we always had with the surgeons. We know the pathology now. We know for sure the depth of invasion. We don't leave anything behind. We have it fully evaluated. We pin these things out. And we can take out tumors. We can take them out. Right now, we can even take out full thickness all the way through the gastric colonic esophageal walls. We can do that. We can actually fix the hole we make, too, which is even better. Uh, removing the mucosa, we can do it with a snare technique or with a knife. Uh, it's not really a knife, it's just a hot little probe, and I'll give you some examples of that. And like I say, by doing this, we get actual depth of assessment, and it actually improves the pathologist's interpretation. It's not really their fault. You hand them little tiny pieces of tissue, and they're supposed to you know, be like God and tell you exactly what this is going to do. It's hard to do. But if you give them a big chunk of tissue, they're much more confident in their diagnoses. And we can uh, perform on-block resections with a knife. Instead of just taking out a chunk, we can just cut out the whole area if you want to take the time. Have to say, this is not caught on big time. It takes a lot of time to do this. And right now, there isn't a reimbursement to do it. So you know, if you're spending three hours in a surgical suite with an anesthetist sitting there, and you're not getting paid for it, your bosses tend to tap you on the shoulder and say, what exactly are you trying to do? So there are, uh, but, and also there's increased complications, bleeding and perforation. So uh, a lot of people say in this country, we don't need to worry about doing these big full thickness, I mean, these big wide area resections because, you know, if you just take it out in chunks, it's actually okay. This was a European study done by Horst Newhouse uh, in Germany and said, well, you know, really the ESDs, uh, that's the one where we take out the whole area, really uh, was not able to take out everything because you couldn't visually or even using their best techniques estimate where the areas of dysplasia were. So on-block resection only occurred in less than half and 39% of the patients. Uh, and even if you did it that way and you took it out in chunks, you still had no evidence of the disease in 96% of the patients. So it worked pretty well even if you couldn't do it. Now, there was a recent publication, matter of fact, just this month that looked at full uh, widespread chunk removal of the esophagus and placing a stent afterwards. One of the problems is if you denude the surface of the esophagus, you end up with a big scar and a nasty stricture. So they put a stent right away. This shows you what it looks like after you completely denude the uh, surface of the mucosa of the esophagus for about seven centimeters. This is something I did just yesterday. Uh, that's the last thing I did before I came here. I always do that before I leave town, you know. <laughs> that way, if there's a complication, I'm not woken in the middle of the night. 
those of you who are uh, interns and residents, you might think about that. I always do a procedure right before you go off. But anyhow, so I took out a fairly large chunk of stuff. Uh, and you know, now I have all the tissue, and you completely eliminate that area. And you can see, you get pretty good depth. This is muscularis propria down here. And you pretty much take off everything down to it. And so, you know, we can take out nodular lesions. Usually, we have a cap technique for removing tissue that's pretty good for lesions less than a centimeter and a half in size. Basically, you know, around an inch or so, we can get it. Uh, well differentiated cancers, we can do in areas of flat mucosa. This just shows you, this is just the, the technique. We can use this cap to suck up tissue and then use a lasso to take it off, or we can do this banding technique, which actually, this is, you know, a lot of our technologies come from surgeons. A surgeon invented the banding technique. So we suck it up. This was used to treat hemorrhoids. So he said, hey, this makes sense for flat tissue. Suck it up, drop a band, turn it into a polyp. Gastroenterologists take out polyps all the time. Very easy to do. You leave a big hole behind, and that's the part that scares you. This ESD technique comes from the East. It was developed by the Japanese because they get all these big superficial lesions. We inject the lesion to lift it off of the muscularis propria, and then we carefully dissect it. You know, there's all these knives. The Japanese now are like back in their samurai stage. They have these senseis that are masters of the knife, seriously. And if you're in that guy's university, you learn that knife. You don't learn any others. It's, it's very interesting. So this is a submucosal dissection. You know, basically what we do is once we make an incision around that area, we use something like this. That's my personal favorite, which is a hook knife invented by a Japanese doctor, Yamamoto, who is very good. And you can stick that underneath, and you can just basically start whittling off the submucosal tissue. It's also good, you know, if you get stuck tissue now, we actually can cut out fibrotic bands. It's really kind of cool. I've seen, I can't do it, but the Japanese and Koreans and Chinese in, in mainland China can actually take off lesions that are adherent, like right on the anastomosis. They'll, they'll take it down to the staple. It's pretty cool. I mean, in the past, we'd throw up our hands and say, there's no way we can go near a suture line. You know, it's just, you know, it's all adherent. But, you know, now it's really opening up. If, you, if those of you are thinking about it, this is really a cool field now. You know, you can really uh, uh, get to do a lot. And it's kind of like microsurgery. You know, I think we're frustrated surgeons, but we're all medical doctors here, so we can't admit that to any surgeon. <laughs> this just shows you dissecting through the uh, tissue. It's kind of interesting. Once you go underneath the surface of the mucosa, it's all this kind of gelatinous, fibrous stuff. And that's the stromal. And we can cut through that now fairly easily. So, you know, it takes out, so if we do it with a knife, we can take out bigger pieces, greater likelihood of resection, and uh, uh, less recurrence rates. But there are increased complications, uh, higher rate of on-block resection, like I say, lower rate of uh, recurrence. Unfortunately, the easiest place to do this is the stomach, and, you know, there's not that many gastric lesions in the United States, so it's hard for us to learn, unlike the Asians. Uh, the esophagus is moderately difficult, and the colon is the most difficult, and that's where we have the most lesions. However, what we compromise with is most of the time we do it in the rectum, where perforations don't cause a lot of trouble. You know, plus, the biggest thing that's advanced this field is we can close our holes now. 
I don't know. In the, in the old days, if we made a hole, you'd scream, you know, your, your assistants would go running out of the room trying to call surgery as soon as they could. Nowadays, you just get the proper equipment, you close the hole. Nobody thinks twice about that. It's really kind of cool. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I went through the wall. You know, 10 years ago, that'd be a disaster. You'd be crying. You'd have to talk to the patient's family. Bad things happen. Nowadays, you go, ah, I had a little hole. we got to hold the patient over for a day or so. Uh, and we can do it with clips. We can do it with a suturing device. There's actually an endoscopic suturing device that can go in there and do uh, mattress sutures, uh, cross stitches, whatever you kind of want to do, we can suture now. And uh, we're actually offering services to surgeons who don't want to operate again. We'll go back in there and we'll close their holes for them, anastomotic leaks, fistula, stuff like that. Because you know how surgeons hate to go back in after they've operated. Not to mention they hate to talk to patients about complications. And then we have this giant bear trap clip. This is a, a, a German-made clip that, that actually is, it, it really reminds you like a bear trap. It closes down with these steel teeth. It's really kind of cool. Uh, and you can get these in all different sizes, all different lengths of teeth that can actually uh, close relatively large holes very, very quickly. Now, you do all this to a patient, you think like, you know, they'll never heal. Actually, you don't even need great acid suppression. This was a study that was done. They did a randomized controlled trial between H2 receptor antagonists and proton pump inhibitors. They actually showed they had equivalent healing rates. It's kind of like patients heal pretty good. So long as they got a decent blood supply, the rest of what we do probably doesn't make that much difference. We, use, we do put them a high dosage of, of proton pump inhibitors just because it makes us feel better, but I'm not sure it really helps the patient. You know, someday we'll probably have to cut back on that. Uh, no major bleeding and stuff. Now, who should we be treating? You know, radiofrequency ablation is the most common thing, and that's basically just a, a thermal injury. You burn off the surface of mucosa, and it's turned out to work pretty well. There's been models made of this, Markov models, where they say, you know, should we treat it non-displastic variants, so on and so forth. If you believe these, you know, it seems to show that the cost effectiveness first is very dependent on the cancer risk. That seems obvious, but you know, you have to prove it with these statistical models. Now, what I love now is they've changed things around. Now it's not, it's the probability of being effective. It used to be the, you know, cost effectiveness ratio, but now they like to call it probability of being cost effective because it's all models. They don't want to say that they actually know how cost effective it is. And then the cost is now willingness to pay. So, you know, uh, because they recognize the fact that there's a whole lot of payers out there that aren't willing to pay anything. So, that's life. With low-grade dysplasia, you can see a crossing point between the effectiveness and the, and the willingness to pay, and that's somewhere around uh, $10,000. Uh, and, you know, that probably is okay. If the cost of procedure is less than that, it may be more cost-effective. If there's no dysplasia, the curves never cross, it's unlikely ever to be cost effective right now, given what we know. And what we know seems to drop the risk of cancer in non-dysplastic variants like every time we get a publication. This is just the device that's out there, a radiofrequency ablation device. Like I say, it's all thermal cautery. Once again, it's like golf clubs. We have round ones, we have ones that are focal, we have ones that fit through the scope. 
all types for all different situations, but they all use a very high energy, short duration pulse of energy to actually just cauterize the surface. And that may be a problem, and I'll get into that when we start looking at the translational aspects of things. This just shows you the data, and it shows that it works pretty good. Eradication high-grade dysplasia easily over 81% uh, of the time. Uh, Low-grade dysplasia 90% of the time. This is all versus the controls. But complete eradication of all Barrett's esophagus only occurs in about three out of four patients. If you leave any behind, they're actually still at risk. So whenever we do this, we tell patients, you know, there's a chance it doesn't completely work. Uh, but then you just keep treating. Complications were low in the New England Journal trial. Uh, you can see uh, really stricture rates were extremely low, 6%. Long-term results are very good as well. If you look at this, it's over, you know, looking at three years, but there's only 56 patients, 96% uh, of the dysplasia was held off. However, this is with continual retreatment. If you find something, you treat it again. So, you know, it's not like they stayed like this without any intervention. Those that do well, these patients, you generally have uh, well, what wasn't effective was by length, age, or BMI, or dysplasia. Uh, if you looked at the uh, uh, other factors, the univariate p-values, abnormal total pH time wasn't a big factor, neither was hiatal hernia size. Uh, those patients that don't do well, we use cryotherapy. <laughs> You know, at least I do generally, and we have two different forms. One's with carbon dioxide, and one is with liquid nitrogen at 190 minus 196C. This is kind of cool. Uh, I do it just be for the looks. It's, uh, I mean, it really kind of gets deeper, and this is actually a small tumor, and the liquid nitrogen goes in there. There's nine liters per minute of gas going in because it's goes in as a liquid and then expands into a gas. So it's nine liters a minute. But you freeze pretty darn well, which in Minnesota, we really understand the value of freezing. <laughs> but you know, the cool thing about this one is it doesn't tend to scar, and patients tend not to have any pain. Uh, you know, because you, you know, if you deal with frostbite, which I imagine you do in New Hampshire, uh, you know, these guys lose fingers. They don't feel a thing. It literally just falls off. So it's kind of interesting. It's a nice therapy for those patients. And, uh, you know, if you look at, this is just a cohort study, multiple patients from different centers, but it seemed to work relatively well for low-grade dysplasia and high-grade dysplasia, similar to that with the radiofrequency ablation. Now, this starts getting to the theory part of it. If you have problems, well, you completely eliminate this, what do you do? Now, a lot of people think, well, you know, we don't need to do anything because it's gone. We've solved your problem, shake the patient's hand, hug each other, and tell them, you know, you don't need to be seen anymore. It turns out that's not true. Recurrence rates are quite high, depending on the series you look at. It's anywhere from 16% to 25%. Very high uh, recurrence rates of intestinal metaplasia. Some of these even contain dysplasia and cancer. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that we don't understand where the Barretts came from in the first place. You know, going all the way back to Norman Barrett, there are people who think this is a congenital condition. 
You know, it's kind of nice how things re-evolved, 1950, 2011. Same theory comes back, except we're much more clever about it. We're using these uh, P63 null mice. This is from Frank McKeon, who's a guy, at, was at Beth Israel, now he's at Singapore. And he's at Jackson Labs. He works part-time for the mouse guys because he makes all these knockout mice. But anyhow, in P63 mice, they don't have squamous epithelia. So they have, he thinks that's a model of Barrett's because you don't get squamous tissue. And if you look at all these mouse embryos, which he marched out and dissected, I don't know if any of you have dissected a mouse embryo. We have. They are small. You've got to spend a long time doing mice embryos. This is not a study you want to get involved with. <laughs> uh, this will take you forever. But anyhow, when he looked at that, he said, you know, P63, what he found is that in mice, that P60, uh, that you get this intestinized epithelium that gets undermined by normal squamous tissue if you have P63 present. You knock out that P63, the intestinal metaplasia stays. So he thinks that there's this persistence in some of these people of P63 null cells that are actually intestinal stem cells that reside at your squamocolumnar junction. He's actually stained some humans even human embryos, how he got those, I'm not sure. But, you know, he's, he's staying them, kind of backs up his hypothesis. I mean, he published this in Cell, which is not a lightweight journal. So, you know, that was very, very interesting. A, a group we work with a lot, this is actually Tim Wang's uh, group out of uh, Columbia, used a different mouse model. And you show something different. That's something else I love about medicine. You want to show something different, use a different model. And you know, you can, you, they, he still argues this is Barrett's esophagus. They use a L2, which comes from a human papillomavirus cassette to inject IL-1 beta, which is a cytokine that stimulates inflammation in proximal esophagus. This is human, uh, the L2 cassette targets this to the mouse proximal uh, squamous tissue. So everything in esophagus and actually his mouth is constitutively inflamed. Using this model, he shows that the intestinal cells, you know, both of these guys use cell lineage, cell tracking uh, schemes to watch the cells migrate up from the gastric cardia. So he doesn't think it's at the junction. He thinks it's lower into the stomach. Now, this makes a difference because we don't treat into the stomach. Gastroenterologists, if we're treating Barrett's, we end right at the esophagus because we, that's what we're told. This is where the bad stuff is. This is where we're treating. Now, the most recent data about this shows evolution in certain mouse models all the way from intestinal metaplasia in the stomach, and it's believed to come all the way from the duodenum up. So we don't know what to believe at this point. You know, we certainly aren't going to be ablating all the way into the duodenum. And we don't know what we have to do to end this. And then to throw a further screwball on this, there was a surgeon who had a rat model that, that you know, did lineage tracing by, uh, it was really terrible, but, you know, he basically wiped out bone marrow and then transplanted uh, uh, female mouse cells into male mice and showed that these male stem cells, bone marrow stem cells, actually accumulate in the esophagus as well. That's actually well known. Bone marrow stem cells will go to sites of injury. But whether or not they actually repopulate as intestinal cells, we're not sure. But you know, these things have consequences. If this truly is in the gastric cardia, then we should be treating further down. 
And that has ramifications onto this high recurrence rate. The other thing we've noticed, and this is using these advanced imaging technologies that have ramifications on what we're doing is looking for various mucosa. This is an old study used in this optical coherence tomography technique to look down into the tissue. The modern version of this uses what they call frequency domain optical coherence tomography, which makes it quicker. You can assemble the images a lot quicker, so you can do a 360-degree scan of the distal six centimeters esophagus. We just got the second generation of this at my lab yesterday. Basically, what you you know, the second generation isn't that much better than the first, but they certainly charge a lot more. <laughs> you know, you can find a. a, a Bears esophagus and dysplasia. But what was cool is you got these little subepithelial glands. And this was used originally by the pathologists who developed this technique uh, uh, over at uh, Mass General. And he used that as a marker for dysplasia. But nobody knows what they are. So we started screwing around with this stuff. You know, we know this is the theory, right? Bioacid reflux, hydrogen ions generating uh, IL-1 reactive oxygen species, uh, IL-6 production as an intermediary, and you start getting all this inflammatory reaction. Now, what was funny is, is that a lot of people call these glands that you see here, these little holes, these are all glands. They think that's all Barrett's because that's what it represented before you did ablation. But if you biopsy this tissue, it's all squamous. The thing that's going on is, is that you haven't, you've done this wonderful ablation of just the surface. But you haven't touched all that junk I showed you before that we do dissection through. That's the stroma. Guess what? That's not normal. Even though the cells are genetically normal, they're activated fibroblasts down there. And they are producing a ton of cytokines. And that's basically what we studied. And in the interest of time, I just summarized by saying, you know, look, this is, IELTS, uh, this is uh, uh, activated fibroblast manifested by alpha smooth muscle actin positivity on immunohistochemistry. You can see, if you count them up, they go up, especially in areas of cancer. So they're, they're linearly associated degrees of malignancy. And this is just what it looks like in the cells. And you can also, this, this, uh, uh, this 8-hydroxyl deoxyglucose is a marker of uh, reactive oxygen species. And that also goes up as you go through uh, evolution towards cancer. IL-6 is a very potent cytokine stimulating the reactive, uh, stimulating inflammation in the mucosa. And you can see it's very high in stroma from activated fibroblasts, particularly those from patients with high-grade dysplasia. Low-grade dysplasia, non-dysplastic Barrett's, cell lines derived from non-dysplastic Barrett's, nothing happens. This, these are actually cell lines from non-dysplastic and dysplastic Barrett's. Even if you stimulate them, they don't produce IL-6. You take out fibroblasts that are supposedly normal from high-grade dysplasia patients, you stimulate them, boom, big time. So, you know, there's something to get rid of. The bottom line is, is, you know, and this is just proving that that's a point. You can inhibit this effect and you can cut down the activation uh, from these reactive oxygen species. But I want to leave some time at the end. But, you know, the bottom line is maybe we should get deeper into the mucosa. Maybe we should be doing these resections like I did on that patient. And these observations about activated stromal fibroblasts and stuff like that, that's what drives me to decide to cut more, cut deeper, because that may be what keeps that patient from developing cancer. 
This is just like translational research type things, but they drive clinical decisions. It is important that we know what we're doing because, you know, you know, this whole thing with superficial treatment may not be the right answer because we're getting all these recurrences. So in summary, you should understand the ablative uh, indications for ablative therapy because you'll encounter those. Generally, patients with dysplasia, either low-grade or high-grade, should be referred for ablation, although to find out they have low-grade or high-grade, they already saw a gastroenterologist. So be able to state the possible etiologies as intestinal metaplasia. At the current time, I think the most popular belief is migration of intestinal stem cells from the cardia region. You know, that seems to be carrying just because it's the most recent one. Understand the ramifications of stromal activation on recurrence. Activated stromal fibroblasts, my personal belief is, has a strong role in the promulgation of neoplasia and also recurrence of Barrett's esophagus after therapy. And I think we need to pay more attention to that because, you know, the whole thing that the disease was just on the surface is another one of these myths kind of we just accepted. All right, that's it for my talk. If there's any questions, I'd be happy to entertain them. Huge wealth of knowledge here. And we also, Dr. Ryan, you didn't know that we actually have some off-site people as well at the VA and other sites, so we may be getting questions in from them. But Dr. Rigby? So, very nice talk. I was curious about you talking about causality or result of these activated stromal fibroblast phenotype. Mm -hmm. So what happens after you take off the high-grade dysplasia and you come back in one month, three months later, are those, is that activated phenotype still there? That's a very good question. Yeah, they are still there. Uh, they can persist for many months, and some of it we're not we're not sure what causes them to persist. Some people it, it disappears, some people it persists, and we think our correlation is that a that persistence correlates with, with recurrence. We think that a lot of this is because the you know you need the squamous epithelium to actually. Uh, kind of adhere together. If you look at, you know, things like the, the zona occludens and uh, e-coherent expression, the neokeratinocytes post-ablation don't seal as well as, as mature keratinocytes. And it may be in that time period, this is all speculation, that reflux is a very big thing. If that persists, that'll penetrate through the neo uh, squamous mucosa and continue to activate those fibroblasts and may continue and, and continue this kind of inflammatory uh, uh, cascade. Uh, that's what we think happens right now in some people. Definitely those that have complete responses and don't reoccur, they don't seem to, you don't see these. You don't see the activated stromal fibroblasts or anything. That all goes away. But you know, still cause and effect, we're not 100% sure. Just to follow up, when you did a lot of research and information, do you think actually that the treatment is causing a problem? Do you think that by doing this dissection and interfering with the vascular supply, riling things up, we're actually creating a larger immune response or inflammatory response, and that's making it worse driving some of these core potent stem cells? That's a good point. We don't know. And, uh, you know, that, that whole thing came in when uh, ablation was, was initially conceptualized. When we first started ablating, we weren't sure it actually helped or hurt. 
You know, what you raise is a great point. You know, if you think about it, here's what we believe. Reflux causes erosions, denudation of the uh, mucosa, increased inflammation. Well, gee, aren't we doing that when we ablate? When we use heat, we destroy the whole mucosa. We're doing the same darn thing and creating inflammation. So why is it in one instance we get squamous regrowth, in the other you get a, a preneoplastic intestinal metaplasia? That's how come I always say you got to take a step back from just doing things like ablating because it makes you feel good, makes the patient feel good, and think about what you're doing because there's a problem. Sometimes what we're doing isn't the right thing for patients, and we're not sure. I mean, you know, uh, we may, you know, there's got to be something to that inflammatory cascade, and now they're looking at, as you're suggesting, the immune response itself, and is that, you know, is the type of, uh, uh, of patient and their immune response responsible for a lot of these patients that develop barriers? Uh, and that's been proposed before. Rebecca Fitzgerald has shown that different cytokine profiles in patients with Barrett's versus those that just have erosive esophagitis. Uh, that was a wonderful uh, talk. Thank you very much. Um, could you revisit the issue of the, the screening? Uh, we have a lot of primary care folks in the audience, and there's always these two different worlds of you know, the, the quote-unquote real lesions that really need treatment, really need expertise, and then the army of people who may not need anything, but they've become medicalized. Uh, this is not only shown gastroenterology, but everywhere. Yeah, I think, I, you know, like, like most, you know, the thing of it is, once you tell somebody they have a pre-malignant lesion, or, you know, it's very hard to get away from uh, surveillance and stuff. I know, statistically, once we diagnose somebody with Barrett's esophagus, really, we don't need to do anything. Their odds of dying of cancer are extremely low. Somehow, though, what we have to impact is the overall rate of cancer. So we've got to find that 90% of individuals that, that present with the cancer without any prior diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. So without screening, I don't know how else to do that. Now, if you, if you go to the NCI and you talk to their uh, new director, who's a very bright guy and has a Nobel Prize to prove it, uh, his belief is that eventually we will calm down screening by doing uh, general genetic profiling. We will find out people, you know, they'll do your DNA, we'll find out what you're at risk for, and we'll have a target group that way. I'm not convinced because, you know, it's certainly not just DNA. All the epigenetic phenomena that occur in Barrett's esophagus is a huge deal. Uh, but he believes that that would be the first phase, mass population screening for all diseases. There'll never be anything specific for Barrett's. You know, it'll be for everything, uh, heart disease, various cancers. You get a profile, they hand it to you. You know, it's already happening. I don't know if you guys get those, you know, get those commercial labs. Patients come in and say, look, I'm at risk for this. You know, you look at these mutations, you go, like, well, I don't know, you know, uh, what am I supposed to do? And, and that's what he believes. And then the next step will be a specific test for those individuals at risk. Right now, without that information, I think it's reasonable if you have people with a lot of those risk factors. And what's a lot? I don't know, two or three. 
to screen them. You know, uh, that's just my personal belief because I want to try and make an impact on the overall incidence of incurable uh, adenocarcinomas. Cost effectiveness, I think that the screening tool will not be endoscopy. The screening tool will have to be a non-physician delivered device. Uh, and there's a number of them out there. There's cytological capsules that's been bought by a commercial entity. Maybe we'll be screening stool not only for uh, colonic DNA, but looking for esophageal cells. We don't know yet. And, and they actually that VLE device, the OCT device, there's a capsule version of that that's being developed for screening. I don't think that's gonna work, but you know, it's gotta be very cheap. You know, the cost range has to be like less than a hundred bucks, I think, in one of the studies. Uh, so it's gotta be cheap. And it, you know, and then once you throw a physician in there, primary care specialist, that shoots it out the window, it won't be cheap. So we gotta have something less expensive that they can use for this. You know, I suspect nurses will be doing a lot of these screening if we can make the test easy and uh, uh, sensitive enough. But I, I, I believe we will be because, you know, clearly that's where all the economic savings gonna be. If we can stop the disease from occurring, then you don't have all those downstream costs. And, you know, getting rid of somebody with just flat mucosa and a few genetic abnormalities, a whole lot easier than whacking out their whole esophagus once they develop a cancer. So, you know, that's where I think we'll be. In the last minute, then, can you speak to why there seem to be such discrepancies between men and bears, women and bears, and different ethnic groups? Why do white male Caucasians have the highest risk? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. There was a review written on reflux that was published in Gut this month. Uh, Guy Bookstancher, the, the Dutch guy. Anyhow, he's the first author. He shows a very nice series of pie graphs. For women out there, you realize your incidence of reflux symptoms is similar to men. You know, it's when you go up the food chain to cancer, you know, to Barrett's esophagus and cancer, more and more men have those than women. So why is that? Well, we don't really know for sure. There's a bunch of theories on that. You know, one is males have more central obesity and that tends to drive more reflux. Ken McCall just published a recent paper showing that, you know, the central obesity and hiatal hernia can induce uh, short segment reflux into the esophagus. Very easy to do. Uh, that's one of the things. Men tend to have central obesity. Women do not. There's been theories about women and iron content. Because one thing you notice is that if you look at the curves for adenocarcinoma, once women become postmenopausal for about 10 years, their cancer incidence rates catch up. You know, the, the curves are about the same as men, just delayed. So, you know, that's another thing. You know, iron obviously with reactive oxygen species. You generate a lot more iron as a man than you do as a woman. Menses may protect you. That's one. That's another theory. So there's there's different theories about that. And then is there anything strange? The Y chromosome is pretty worthless. You know, if you think about it, there's not a whole lot of good genes on there. People have been people have been looking for some kind of unique tumor uh, uh, suppressor that we don't have on the Y. So that that's another possibility. You know, because there are certain cancers that are more prevalent. If, if you are, uh, I mean, we were looking into this once too, but overall, there's a, nobody's proven anything. 
So I've got a lot of theories. Great. Well, we'll let uh, we get back to work. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.